Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we beam weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, from 2010 I reviewed Mark Changizi's book, The Vision Revolution. And from 2013 I interviewed Mark Changizi about his colour vision research. In coming weeks I'll interview him about his new book, Expressively Human. Earlier I spoke with Aaron Cook and Daniel Keogh about Mark Changizi's new book, The Vision Revolution. It's the latest research about the evolution of human vision. So we're not talking just the eyeball or the evolution of vision in vertebrates, but we're talking about the way humans see the world. And he's very cleverly put this in terms of superpowers. Mentions that in M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable movie, The Bruce Willis character doesn't know that he's got superpowers. He's using them unaware because he takes them for granted until he's forced to know about them. And this is similarly, we have these superpowers, but we don't think of them as superpowers because we use them every day. So he goes through what are our superpowers. And the first one is colour telepathy. Now, he says that the evolution of colour, the range that we see in, particularly we can see between certain shades of colour very, very tiny differences and other ones not very much. And the reason for this is because our eyes are finely tuned to be able to perceive colour changes in human skin. That in fact, from the bruising to the paleness of someone who's ill to the blushing of someone who's embarrassed, we're actually evolved to be able to read our fellow humans' skins. So we can see emotions, we can see health, And in fact, this is why most cultures around the world, they don't have a name for the color of skin. To them, it's just skin. Other people's skin from other parts of the world, they're differently colored, but our skin is just neutral. It's plain. It's the base color. And he's got a very good line of argument and evidence, and it's illustrated with these fantastic images that lead you along and explain very clearly how we do this and how it's affected our vision. He then goes into X-ray vision. Did you know that you had x-ray vision? Well, if you're in a forest with lots of leafy, twiggy things around you and you've got binocular vision, your binocular vision, having two eyes to the front of your head, isn't really just for 3D that everyone talks about because it's not the primary thing. If there's something blocking your view, you can always have one eye on the other side and your brain doesn't just show you the view through or just the close-up bit. It shows you both. So you actually see, if you put a book in front of one eye and you look beyond it, you'll see the person in the distance or the thing, the wall or whatever you're looking at sharply and you have a ghost of the close-up theme because that's what your brain does with the images. So this is really useful. You're not ignoring the close-up information in favour of the distant information. You're seeing both in a sort of a overlay ghostly sort of way as if you were seeing right through it. And if you're in the forest trying to escape predators... This is invaluable. Or if you're a predator, you find most predators have binocular vision, both eyes at the front, not at the side, Mm. then you can, in fact, spot little animals that are hiding in the undergrowth. They think they're hiding because to them, 
they can't see past the obstacles. But to you, with your X-ray vision, you can see right through the twigs, right through the branches, right through the grass, and right through the fence, if that's what it is, to the other side, and you can find the prey. So it's really, really useful. If you're in a one-person shooter game, and you're not sure why it's not quite working, your gun seems to block things, or your Mm. machete or whatever, it's because you've got monocular vision. It's not two eyes. You can't see through things like you're used to doing. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'm not really stopped to think about that. As a kid, I used to always be fascinated about when you closed one eye, the view would be slightly different to the other. But the idea of being able to see through an object that's, that's in the foreground is, yeah, it's an interesting... You've not thought of it as a superpower. That's right. That's right. But it can make all the difference. So he goes on to, I mean, I'm really rushing through what's really a a complex and interesting book, to future seeing, that we see the future. Because when you look at the world, particularly things that move, they're moving fast enough and our brain takes long enough to process the images that by the time we're aware of it, it's already gone. So if something's coming towards you or going away from you or going past you, if you only process where it is at the time that you see it, it's too late for you to actually react and catch it or run away or get out of the way, whatever's necessary. So your brain actually models what's likely to happen next. And of course, the best way to model what's going to happen next is to make the future happen by moving it yourself, which we're more than capable of doing. goes through a whole lot of optical illusion. He shows that there's a large class of optical illusions that work by taking advantage of the way our brain anticipates the future. So you get illusions of motion, If you, again, back to the superheroes, they have capes, and the reason for flowing capes is not because it's just cool, but because if you're drawing it in a comic book, it gives the illusion of motion. Same for the little lines are drawn past things going fast in drawings. It's all taking advantage of the way our brain has streaks when we anticipate something that's moving. So he goes through all these illusions, and you can see what's going on, and he then predicts what would work, and he goes through classes of illusions and basically proves his point. So we actually anticipate the future to some degree, and you can see the consequences. It sounds almost like he's saying that we've got some sort of buffer in our brain, like when you're waiting for YouTube to download on a slow internet connection. I wonder if that's got anything to do with how things seem to happen in slow motion when particularly important events happen. Mm. Maybe, maybe there's some sort of link between the two of those. Sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, there have been. Yeah, there's been a bit of study into that—the kind of life flashing before your eyes, or yeah, moments of sheer terror, etc. Taking, feeling like they take longer. I'm sure it would be that mechanism just doing the reverse, trying to trying to take every second out of it. I'm sure they're going to talk, you know, talk about as the matrix part of the brain. There you go. So the last thing that he looks at is what he calls spirit reading which is the fact that we can read the minds, the thoughts of people long dead. And if you spoke to someone from a preliterate society and read out from a book what someone had written sort of 500 years ago, they would actually be rather shocked because you might explain what you're doing, but it won't make a lot of difference to them. Through a lot of human history, literacy was, I mean, literacy is pretty recent. It's only a few thousand years old. And it was the minority who could do this arcane art. And, I mean, the ancient Egyptians had being a a form of magic given by the gods, and and so did a whole lot of other cultures. He shows that basically it's writing is culturally evolved to take advantage of the way our visual system sees the world. 
and our brain, our optical centers have evolved to see objects. So where writing is gone, whether it's logographic in the form of one ideogram like Chinese per word, or whether it's made up of letters, which speech writing like you have in English, it's either to be an object itself or for the letters to be parts of objects, which match very precisely the way we look at objects to understand them as objects in our world. So if you look at the way any shape in your room is made up of little corners and things, he matches them up to letters, to shapes that are common to all sorts of languages, and even to little icons and drawings. And if you look at children's development, all children start by developing their own sort of picture writing. If you look at the... They have representative drawings. The drawings of little children are usually not meant to be realistic. They're not meant even by the children to be realistic. They're meant to tell a story... If usually if you listen to the children, they don't say, that's mummy, that's daddy, that's a... They tell a story. This is mummy, and there's this, and she's doing that, and this is happening. And so all the little diagrams that the child has drawn tell a story, and they're a very primitive form of writing. And he goes on with the cultural evolution of it and how it affects the brain and how it goes to the way you perceive things. Wouldn't it be great if you could actually use all this visual processing that happens so quickly in the brain to do computation. And he actually worked out a way to do some logic based on some of these illusions about whether things are going into the page or out of the page, and your brain detects whether the cube is going into the page or out of the page based on what you see around it, the context. And you can follow one of his little logic diagrams that he's got here, and it'll actually do a computation of a one or a zero, but it's a bit of effort. And then he thought about it and thought, well, that's too hard, right? It's nice, but it's too hard. And he went away and thought about it for a year or so, and then he realised, in a pre-literate society, if you wanted to learn an algorithm like a recipe to cook something or to make something, you either had to work it out for yourself and memorise it, or you had to generally be taught by an elder. Someone had to teach you. And that person had to take a lot of time, because you had no way of storing it outside of your brain. It all had to be in your head, and you had to take all that time to learn and learn and learn, and that person had to be very patient and have time for you. Whereas now you can hear someone's voice off a page, you can read it as often as you like, and a book is infinitely patient. You can read as many times and it doesn't matter if you don't get it the first time. And there's so many more teachers. So it's a way for you to get a program, an algorithm, a a way of doing things, a set of steps that will give you a result like cooking, into your head. So we can program our brains with writing. You can read the thoughts. You can write your thoughts down, and then hundreds of years later, someone else can read them and know what you said and know what you thought. Whereas before writing, that was impossible unless you told a story that everybody retold for generations afterwards without changing or sung a song. Yeah, and and having those patterns, particularly like, you know, Iliad and all that. Exactly. Yeah. So outside of that, no immortality Mm. for you at all, really. And now there is. Your voice will be heard down the ages. It'll be in a library somewhere online. Visual, yeah. Yeah. It's a visual code of it. Okay. And, of course, you can look stuff up. So you can go to a library or, of course, you can just look for a tutorial online in a search engine and you can learn just about any skill you want. It's somebody has put instructions out there for you. You can be as multi-talented as you wish to be. It's an awesome thing. So I highly recommend The Vision Revolution by Mark Changizi. It's put out by Ben Bella Books. Mark Changizi 
is a theoretical neurobiologist and director of human cognition at 2AI Labs. Mark Jeansy has a different view of how the ability to see red and green colours evolved in humans and what it's for, and he's applied this with the result that he's actually been able to give the ability to see red and green to people who've previously been blind to red and green colours. I began by asking him to explain the difference between animal colour vision and human colour vision. Your dog, for example, and the other mammals have one dimension fewer than we have for colour. They see grayscale differences and they can see blue-yellow differences, but they don't see an extra dimension that we primates or some of us primates evolved, which is a red-green dimension. And historically, it was thought that this new red-green dimension that some of us primates have was about finding fruit or leaves in the forest. And I argued a few years ago that, in fact, it seems to have the signature properties that you'd expect if it's for seeing emotions and health on other people or other primates' faces. So it turns out that when you blush and you blanch and you flush and you get red with anger and all these kinds of color signals that our bodies do and our skin does, it's because of the way the blood changes its nature. You get more oxygenated and less oxygenated blood, for example, that it shows. And this oxygenation of hemoglobin turns out to be a very peculiar thing to see, and you have to have a very peculiar kind of color vision in order to be able to see it. It turns out that our primate color vision has exactly that peculiarity, allowing it to see these variations in oxygenation that our color signaling relies upon. So that was one of the main arguments for it. The other argument was that the primates with color vision are the ones that are naked, that have naked faces, naked rumps, naked genitalia. The ones that don't have color vision, like us, are furry-faced, like your typical mammal. So we evolved to see red and green colors in order to be able to read the levels of oxygen in people's blood through their skin and you can only see people's skin if they're naked. That's right. And even a camera, for example, which does have red-green, it has three cones, when the cones or the filters are placed in the wrong spot on the spectrum, then you aren't sensitive to seeing the kinds of subtle spectral modulations that happen due to the oxygenation of hemoglobin. So you have to have not just an extra dimension beyond that of the other mammals, you have to have the right kind of sensitivity to be able to sense it. If you don't, like dichromats, or that is colorblind folks, are usually men, if you're missing the kind of extra cone that we primates evolved, then not only are you missing an extra dimension, but you're specifically missing the one that allows you to better sense the health and emotions of those around you. What about people with different skin colors? How does that work? Across all of the primates, of course, there's a huge ver variety of baseline skin colors. But what's the same across all of us primates and all of us humans is that relative to the starting baseline, the modulations, are, which are all due to the blood, are due to the same blood that we all share. And so even though you started at a potentially slightly different skin tones, it's all the modulations from that baseline that matter, and our eyes are equally sensitive to it no matter what the skin color is. So colorblind people, or people with red-green blindness, aren't as good at reading the emotions from people as people with full color vision. Ideally, one would have data on the emotion side too, and I'm trying to encourage some people to try to do studies on colorblind folk to find their deficits. You'd like to find that, that they do in fact have emotional 
reading deficit. They're emotionally dense. We don't actually have data on that side. We have data, however, on the health side. For 200 years, ever since Dalton, one of the original scientists who in the early days studied color vision, was a dichromat. He was colorblind. And ever since then, doctors throughout these 200 years have complained about when they're colorblind, that they have an inability to see and read the health signs on their patients. And there's been questions in the American literature as to whether or not colorblind students should be discriminated against, so they shouldn't be allowed to go to medical school. And in some other countries, apparently, you aren't allowed to go to medical school if you're colorblind. Historically, for thousands of years, color was part of the symptomatology, that is, the lists of things that doctors are supposed to look for on the pallor of the skin. And even today, on something like 25% of the major diseases still list the pallor of the skin. Effectively, we have oximeters in our eyes. Oximetry is one of these things that we put on babies' feet or whatever when they're born that measures the oxygenation of the blood on that one spot. Your eyes effectively have evolved. If you have three-color vision like we primates have, they've evolved to not just sense oxygenation in one spot, but to be an oximetric camera so that when you look at all of the skin, whatever parts you can see, you can see the entire picture of all of the gradient of oxygenation on that skin, and that provides a wealth of information for health and emotion. Many of the sorts of things that we sense, we may not even have good words to describe. And you've actually developed some technologies that are based on this understanding of what color vision is for, that can change the way people see color. That's right. So, you know, recently, my colleague Tim Barber and I, we started a research institute, and the, and the idea was to study cognitive science, continue studying a, artificial intelligence, the kinds of things that I've studied over the years in various topics. But the idea of the institute was to fund ourselves through spin-off technology. So we got to thinking, once we know that the way in which the eyes and our color vision is optimized or, or rigged to measure and see the oxygenation and the blood that's inside the skin... It's well optimized in the sense that the, the, the wavelength sensitivities of our cones are optimized for this. It turns out that there's some noise that comes from the hemoglobin as it varies its oxygenation. And some of this noisy parts of the spectrum, if we can block those parts, then you actually can see these oxygenation changes even better. So the idea is, with we have actually several technologies, but the, the main one that we is this that identifies these very narrow bands of wavelengths that in fact hurt your ability to see these oxygenations and variations, and by blocking that, then you are even even better at seeing these emotional and health modulations. So a color normal person now sees them um, even more strongly, whether it's for poker playing or everyday life, or whether it's a medical personnel wanting to better read the health of the patient. So you could play poker, and instead of having glasses that let you read the cards, you have glasses that actually let you read the people. Uh, exactly. And you can have, we also have prototype O2 lamps now because we're moving into illumination. You can illuminate whole rooms in any of these with using these filters so that everybody in the room can have the same benefits without the need of having sunglasses or eyewear on. The filter that I, what I mentioned is we call it the OxyAmp. It amplifies oxygenation and it doesn't really hinder anything. Now we've got two other technologies. When you look at people's blood and you look at people's skin, you actually see two dimensions of the way that their blood changes. So, for example, if you look at your hand, if you squeeze your, your palm and then let go, you'll see all these variations in the concentration of blood in the skin. Those are more yellow-blue changes that it undergoes. And we have one eyewear that it's called the hemo-iso. 
hemoisolator. It isolates your perception to just these changes in concentration, but you can no longer see the variations in oxygenation. So for example, veins are gone, which relies upon variations in oxygenation. And then we have another one that is called an oxyiso, rather than the oxyamp, which I mentioned earlier. This one, if you look at your veins, they'll be much enhanced. You'll see the veins, but you will no longer see the variations in concentration. It just isolates your perception to this other dimension. So each of these two specialized eyewear for medical purposes focuses on one or the other dimension, whereas this oxyamp I mentioned that was just blocking the noise enhances oxygenation, but not at the expense of the other. Well, it turned out that this specialized oxyiso, when we're demonstrating these eyewear to people all over the world, colorblind folks, usually guys, occasionally would put those ones on and they'd say, oh my God, I can see all these red greens. And these are red green colorblind folk who have great difficulty seeing reds and greens and have great difficulty discriminating between them. So it just looks all the same as far as they're concerned. As long as they're the same level of luminance, then they just look the same. But suddenly, because they're not completely colorblind, they, they have too few M cones or too few L cones, but they have some, which means that because this amplifies the oxygenation signal so strongly at the expense of everything else, and they have a little bit of red-green sensitivity, but it's really, really weak, one is able to ramp that up and suddenly make it so that they can suddenly see red-green differences in the world, which were otherwise too small for them to notice. You know, that wasn't really the purpose for it. It was really intended to be, for medical purposes, this particular specialized oxyiso. But we kept getting this feedback, so then we made a call for lots of colorblind folks to call us, and we sent out a whole bunch to, to a bunch of colorblind folks, including scientists, who have now given us a lot more testimonials about it, including uh, Daniel Bohr, a scientist from the University of Sussex, who carried out a bunch of experiments as well and gave us a lot more feedback. So these standard Ishihara plate tests, where you look at these numbers hidden in these dots, and if you're col red-green colorblind, you can't see many or, or any of them. And they're all, all of these testimonials are reporting that, that they, people are going from seeing basically none of those to seeing basically all of those. While the testimonials are fascinating, is there any likelihood of clinical trials being conducted? Well, I, I'm not sure if I'd call this quite a clinical trial in the sense of it's, it's uh, uh, but each of these testimonials that are getting back to us are doing these simple Ishihara plate tests, which are very simple uh, tests of red-green, and this is also what uh, the scientists who I mentioned had done. He carried out some more complex psychophysics experiments, also showing some other effects, which I won't get into here, helping be better understand the mechanism by which this colorblindness aid is working. So it's, of course, ex of course, excited if independent of us, people will go forth and do larger studies. That would be great. We'd prefer it to be independent of us because it's at the end of the day, it's it's more believable when other folk do it than when, when we do it. So, Mark, you're no longer with the university. You've started a company called 2AI, which has a rather unusual way of funding itself. Can you tell me about it? Uh, so, I, you know, I was a professor at RPI, and before that, I was a fellow at, at Caltech. And one of the problems recurring in academics in the United States and elsewhere is there's a lot of folks and a lot of pieces in magazines recently about folks leaving academics. And I was one of these folks. And one of the problems with academia is that you get your first position as a graduate student because some professor someplace has agreed to let you work in his or her lab. And so after five or six or seven years, you're, you've become an expert in his or her project, and you've had very little creativity and freedom yourself. You get your first job, your first next thing is a postdoc, where you're going to work in some lab that's very similar to what you did for another four, four or six years, 
Then you get your job, you need to get a grant. Well, you're going to get in pretty much the same thing that you're good at. It's the only way you're going to be able to get a grant because it's so competitive. Once you've gotten a grant, well, you're the guy or gal that's got a lab now. Last thing you want to be is the person who had a lab but no longer has a lab because that's humiliating. So soon you've spent 20 years in academia and you've been doing the same incremental sorts of things following this grant track. And the path that you've taken may be largely determined on the arbitrariness of the lab who decided to take you as a graduate student. And so if you want to have your intellectual freedom, then you need to have nobody telling you what kind of research that you should work on. So a lot of my career has been designed to try to be, remain aloof from these sorts of things, not going to conferences where I care about the opinions of whole communities and get trapped into their, their kinds of thinking. I chose to go to RPI in the first place because it was a smaller university where the grant demands would be less pressing than they would be at some other places. But ultimately, it still drives life in most universities that your next thought is always, okay, I need to apply for up to maybe five or 10 grants to hope to get one. And you're just gaming the system, hoping to find a way to work, say, come up with work to do for three or four years rather than working on what you think is the best thing to work on. So the opportunity came up working with a colleague, Tim Barber, who is an AI, artificial intelligence and computer scientist type person. And he was thinking about starting an uh, independent lab. And it seemed to be the right time for me. I had enough under my belt and the motivation for us was to see whether or not we could remain an independent research institute that focuses on what we deem to be the most fundamental problems. And rather than funding ourselves by going to the government and asking for money or, go to or to foundations, to fund ourselves by actually doing something helpful by spinning off intellectual property from our research and seeing if we can turn it into products that help people. So where we've spent our energies is, is on this color vision and the implications or the consequences of this theory about color vision and this work on color vision and, and trying to utilize this to harness our eyes to better see, passively view the vasculature under the skin is one way of, of, of describing it in terms of medical purposes and or utilizing it to just have a, a better, more emotionally satisfying view of other people in the world, which is exactly what color vision evolved for in the first place. If people want to find out more about your work, where should they look online? So our two AI, this is the, the numeral two, followed by AI as in toward artificial intelligence. So it's 2AI.org. And my own research can all be linked in some way or another from my webpage at Changizi, C-H-A-N-G-I-Z-I, Changizi.com. Mark Changizi, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, 
www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos, and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labeled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.